Hey, thanks for sharing, listeners. Before we begin this episode, Jackie and I wanted to invite you to join us at some events that we've, uh, we're going to be doing this year with uh, our friends at Worth Recovery. We've had Amy on the show a few times, um, and she, she's putting on some day-long intensives for women in recovery. Uh, she's calling it the Courage Conference. Our, the first one we'll be involved with is going to be in Salt Lake City on February 24th, 2018. Um, and it's going to be a day of learning how to dive into your story and find courage there. Jackie and I are going to be talking specifically about uh, finding courage in your own story, and we're going to be sharing more of our own stories. Uh, so we hope to see you there. And if you're not able to make the one in Salt Lake uh, through 2018, there's going to be three other courage conferences. Uh, there will be one in September in Seattle, Washington, and one at some point in Atlanta, and one at uh, Buffalo, New York. And Jackie and I are hoping to be at all of those. Um, so you can find out more about this on worthrecovery.com um, and look up the Courage Conference. Now, hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks for sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, the Google Play store, or on the Podbean app. You can find more Thanks for Sharing at www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash healingpaths. That's path with an S. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm John T. And I'm Jackie P. Uh, we're here today with our uh, colleague, Deb Kaplan. Um, we're really excited to have her on. Deb played a pretty uh, big role in Jackie and I's uh, CSAT training and mm-hmm. has continued to be someone that we've relied on for um, expertise and knowledge and um, just helping us to be good at what we do. So we're excited to have her on today. Welcome, Deb. Thank you both. Thank you. I'm really honored and I... Uh, so appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to sit and talk about all of what we will share today on money and work and monetized rage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say to our listeners, like this is the area where um, I, I think Deb is, is really kind of at the forefront of understanding the intersection of sex and money. And you know, she talked about monetized rage and Deb's written a book um, called for love and money. Um, which is a really great exploration of those issues and, and really helpful. And um, that's the part of CSAT training that Deb um, really highlights is kind of where addiction crosses into other issues, where sex addiction crosses into other issues. Yeah, and I really appreciate that you take a very no-nonsense approach mm-hmm. and tackle some of these tough issues that um, are so prevalent but oftentimes overlooked and not talked about. And you just kind of hit it with this no nonsense and yet not shaming approach, Deb. Mm -hmm. Mm, Thank you. Um, It's interesting. With your permission, I'll share a little bit about how the concept of the book and the work that I do came to be. Yeah, please. Um, I, for many years, was a trader on Wall Street. My history is financial. I've been on Wall Street as a commodity option trader. I have worked in junk bond trading. And I've been in very male-identified worlds for many years. Before I came to my 
own recovery or knew that I needed to be in recovery, and I'm uh, recovering from sex addiction for 18 years, I was well aware of the power of money and work. And on Wall Street, legendary is sex, money, and power. Years later, after my own recovery in sex addiction and my work with sex addiction that you mentioned and alluded to, it became very clear that the clients showing up in my practice were speaking to the issues of money and the control that work and money had in their lives without actually acknowledging or understanding that this was operating behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And it was in that moment that my two worlds came together and while much had been written about sex and much had been written about money, and the same could be said for power, no one had brought sex, money, and power together as mm -hmm. a very powerful exploitive dynamic. And that became the foundation for the book and the emphasis for my work in practice. Here, I, I practice here in Tucson. Arizona and travel, do a lecture on this topic and, and teach other therapists how to work with this dynamic in their practices. Mm -hmm. So you, you talked about how um, like the, the money and power dynamic um, for a lot of sex addicts kind of plays out in the background. Um, like if you could talk a little bit about how you see that through the course of someone's recovery, like how that starts to come to the forefront and how they start to get kind of that awareness that this is all part of the same picture, not isolated issues. Sure. As clinicians, we are aware that in the world of sexual compulsivity and addiction and unhealthy sexual behaviors, whether a client does acknowledge being a sex addict or just struggling with sexual behaviors. What I often see is that money and or the lack thereof, having it, not having it, and the obsession around what money means to me, the individual, operates in the background. So for example, many male clients that I work with who happen to identify as being a sex addict how money was used to exploit those in his life that he was in relationship to, but exploiting in the process and in the service of his addiction. The women that, or the men that the addict would be exploiting in the service of his addiction as acting out partners. This certainly is speaking to, in a very broad sense, what we're seeing at large in society now with the mm -hmm. advent of the Me Too movement and with what came to pass with Ronan Farrow's article in The New Yorker about Harvey Weinstein, that those who are actively seeking to exploit the vulnerable in a sexual manner tend to use the money and the power and the access to power and control in the service of augmenting that sexual exploitation. And so we are finding, and I'm hearing, and perhaps this is different for both of you, we're both located in different parts of the country. Social media brings us all in one global village. But I don't hear anyone talking about the money. I don't hear anyone talking about the access to money and what that has done 
the victims often tend to not have as much and are seeking a, a position of power or mm-hmm. acceptance, success in a career. But no one's talking about these men who tend to be in the positions of power also wield it through the control of the money. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's where in the last maybe week, um, right before the Golden Globes, right, it started a, a, maybe a, a side um, campaign about Time's Up, um, where women are now starting to at least talk about one piece of the money, which is the, the pay gap and paying women less for, you know, their role and valuing male roles in Hollywood over female roles. And, and, and that extends, obviously, outside of Hollywood. But I think that's one piece that is now starting to be addressed, thankfully. But I think, and, and may, you can speak to this better than me, but I think that money piece is so, there's so many light layers to it. Yeah, and I, and I want to be very clear for the listeners. And uh, when in this conversation or when I'm alluding to the control of money, I am not speaking about a coupleship or dynamic, a marriage or a circumstance where there is not enough money to go around. Mm-hmm. I am not speaking to uh, lack of resources which is a very different topic, incredibly important of its own, but not what we're speaking about here. What I'm alluding to is the control of the money, the exploitation of the vulnerable with controlling the access to money, Mm -hmm. the lack thereof, the disparity, and the power differential in the dynamic as it pertains to money. So yes, Jackie, as you just alluded to, with Time's Up, that has ridden in and been invited into the conversation at large because of what has transpired sexually. We are now only beginning to really recognize and take seriously the salary differential and disparity between what women are paid and what men are paid. Mm-hmm. That aside, for um, the addict, for the sexual uh, addict who acts out with sex, money that plays a role in this is augmenting the power differential. It, it's a further augmenter of how much parity, how much power differential there is in a relationship. When I speak with partners who might be the individual married to or in a committed relationship with an addict, while she, if for the purpose of this conversation, it could be a male, but I'll allude to her as a female because it'll make it easier and he or she. One of the first things I ask is, how much do you know about the money in your family? Mm. What do you know about the money that is being made or saved? How and who makes the decisions about the money? Mm -hmm. And what I often hear is, I don't know enough about money. That's not my area of expertise. He takes care of it. I don't, you know, I I have my role in the family, and this sounds very heteronormative. I I Mm -hmm. give you that. But whether or not there are roles assigned within a relationship and whether or not that there are uh, addictions going on, the fact that many partners may choose not to have a role actively in the money 
may ultimately lead to their undoing and their vulnerability and therefore exploitation unwittingly, not mm-hmm. something they are choosing to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, when you put in and roll into that, uh, an addict who's going to really be self-absorbed, to say the least, narcissistic and perhaps psychopathic in their behavior and presentation, the money piece only further puts the exploitive and um, detrimental dynamic in play. Mm -hmm. I I appreciate what you said about that um, kind of exploitive dynamic and that um, kind of not knowing what's going on uh, with the money. I I think about... uh, clients that I've worked with as I've watched couples start to have different conversations around money. Um, and it feels like there's this 10 foot concrete wall that they have to break through in order to start even just those conversations around like, how much do you make and what do we save and what do we have in the account and what's our debt picture? Like, um, like I can feel, I can feel how late in that space is with power and privilege and, um, like emotion, there's a lot of emotion in those conversations and those issues. Yeah, and it, it, it speaks to the fact that in our world as sex addiction therapists, we can talk about masturbation, we can talk about sexual acting out, we can talk about arousal templates and, and the ways in which addicts act out, but ask a client about how much money she makes or he makes or who oversees that and the conversation goes cold in the room. Mm-hmm. It's, it's quite, I find it fascinating that we have turned <sighs> the conversation on its head, whereas anyone would talk about sex in, in, out in the greater world, and no one in, in therapy talks about sex. We talk about sex all the time, but we mm-hmm. don't talk about it. Yeah. yeah. And at large in society, we are loath to talk about money as well. Mm-hmm. What, what do you see as like, you know, I don't know if you could elaborate on all of the reasons why, but what are some of the reasons why you see money being such a difficult conversation? At the core, what I think when we're talking about addictive behaviors or um, 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 an avoidance to talk about certain things, what we're talking at the core is about shame. Mm -hmm. And if I am uncertain about who I am, disapproving of who I am, embarrassed for who I am, or afraid that I am fill-in-the-blank defective or there's something wrong with me, then I'm going to not trust in my self-esteem and I'm not going to trust that what I believe should happen and how I want to be respected, the level of how I'm willing to be treated erodes considerably. There is a lot of shame that we have in our society around money and making money or Mm -hmm. not having enough. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of shame in our society that we we instill and perpetuate when we don't teach children how to manage money. But that aside, let's also factor in one more piece of this. If money for those that have it are considered privileged and those who do not, and we keep the two stratas apart, the haves and the have-nots bring inherently into that binary equation. 
the shame of having and uh, excuse me, the shame of not having money and the right to have it and the shame that I don't. Mm -hmm. We also carry a lot of shame in our society about our sexuality. We live in a very sexually open society, yet we have some very conservative values. And while we are hypersexual in our ads, social media, television, entertainment, we may not carry those same values. So that differential between what I show the world and how I feel, or how, what I see out there in the world versus how I feel about myself, shame at the core of all of that shuts voices down and shuts down conversation to be had about what is mm -hmm. healthy and what is not healthy. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you bring these two very volatile factors together and then with that lace from anger that is opportunistic or frequently rooted in justifying exploitation or entitlement and you've got a recipe for disaster. You've got mm -hmm. a recipe yeah. for some very volatile, uh, exploitive dynamics. Yeah, I, I really, I'm really glad you brought up that. Like, in our society, sex is in our face through advertising and media, but we don't really talk about what that is and what that means. And it's the same thing with with money. Um, I think it was in one of your one of your trainings I was in. We looked at ads. Um, like, I'm remembering the Dolce Cabana ads, and you talked yeah. about that, mm -hmm. like power and sex and money right there in your face, but like look at the subtext of what's really been communicated there. And um, that idea resonates with a lot of the people that I work with that um, the messaging I've been getting about sex and money and power, it's been everywhere, but never really a space to reflect on what that actually means for me and what I'm actually seeing. And does that align with um, my value? Does that align with what I understand about myself and other people? Um, so kind of that uh, that really confusing place between this is everywhere and in your face, but it's so so shameful and so secretive we can't talk about how it's everywhere and in your face. Yeah, I mean, when I I think in terms of in um, in how we, I'll just think about myself for example. When I think in terms of uh, what do I deem as my self-worth, you know, how would I view myself and my self-worth? I will often think in terms of, am I where I want to be compared to, and the word compared to steps into my inner dialogue. I don't, you know, I don't automatically get to a place where I'm okay where I am right now. Mm -hmm. It's when compared to when I am older or when I was younger or a year from now. Well, sexually and self-esteem, this is all about the comparison aspect. Well, if we don't have conversations and I don't step in into my own narrative, which I do gratefully due to recovery and therapy, I'm able to esteem myself and say right where I am right now is okay. That isn't always easily accessible to me if I'm challenged, struggling, stressed, um, having, a, having a bad day, having a difficult day. Well, my, my self-esteem might be able to allow for my self-correction in perception of who I am. Mm -hmm. 
But if in a family system, we're not teaching how to esteem ourselves and that we are okay, the children of the family, the children as we, as we grow up in society, if I'm not able to self-correct, then I will compare myself to others. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to compare myself to those who are better off than me and see that as, hey, we're okay, I'm okay as I am. No, I'll be looking at what am I lacking. Mm-hmm. Because that is the nature of how um, our society is, is set up, those that have and those that don't. And those individuals with power, if they're not bringing those into the conversation to say, hey, you know, I'm not going to exploit my power. I'm going to use this to help others. I'm going to use this to help those who are not in a position but empower them instead of exploit that vulnerability. Now it changes the game. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it, um, I was going to say when, when shame is at work as it often is, and we, you've, you've talked about how it gets going with this money and <clears throat> work dynamic, oftentimes then the power piece is going to be weaponized. And yeah. and I think there can also be, you know, because as you were talking about using our power for good or using our resources for good, um, but I think oftentimes there's this scarcity mentality. And so that gets in the way of using the resources, using the power for good. Like there's only so much to have. And so I've got to hoard it or I've got to, I, I can't use it for good um, because then it, it'll be gone and I won't have more of it, right? Rather than getting into this, money comes in and money goes out and it will come in again and there's a rhythm that I can trust and be safe with. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, yes. In, in my book, in one of the chapters under monetized rage, I wanted to, we, we had talked about monetized rage and I actually wanted to define it because there may be listeners out there saying, you know, the word sounds great, but I don't know what the expression is or what it means. And um, monetized rage is a behavior. It's really, if we look at sex fused with uh, shame and anger as eroticized rage, well, monetized rage is really no different. It's the fusing of anger or rage, contempt and disdain, along with money and the belief or the feelings I have about it. Mm-hmm. If I were to, um, I, I, I want to quote this, this line from one of the, um, the chapters, in this one, Monetized Rage. Certainly monetized rage, monetized rage, like eroticized rage, is opportunistic, and frequently rooted in deep, angry feelings that justify exploitation for personal gain. Behaviors that are synonymous with narcissism, studies have suggested that narcissists crave authority and power, assume self-entitlement, hold biased views of the self, exploit social relationships, and possess high self-esteem. Well, the self-esteem might be self celebratory and Mm. a little bit embellished. The uh, shame that I may carry about myself has to be, I have to um, manage that. I can't walk around in the world feeling ashamed of myself, and I may have any number of adaptations to manage that. I may come off as looking better than myself than I truly am, 
and trying to manage the impression of who you see, or I may actually become very in, um, subdued and perhaps shrink. But I may need to exploit others in order to feel more powerful because of my powerlessness. Mm -hmm. And if I have the anger around my shame, because shame is often laced with and wrapped in a layer of anger as protective defense. If I bring those two together and I happen to have access to either sex or money or both, and I'm not able to self-regulate and or have insight to self as to what I'm doing, it is very likely that I will use that in the service of exploitation of a vulnerable mm -hmm. other. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so what I'm hearing is, and, and, you know, I see this on a pretty regular basis in my office and the couples that I work with, but it can be that you, you can see sometimes with people who have money and access to sex that there's oftentimes a lot of money that can go out um, drugs, alcohol, prostitutes, wh whatever that looks like. But when it's more direct, right, that's all kind of hidden and, and, sh and laced with shame. Then, you know, spouse may say, hey, let's go on a vacation or, hey, I, I need some money for this. And they get all of a sudden very rigid in the money going out. And, things that are direct requests for money, different things like that. I, I've seen clients where that becomes a real sticking point for them and they start to feel exploited when somebody's asking them for money, mm -hmm. but they'll be spending a lot of money exploiting others. Yeah. The, the dynamic between um, if, if I'm feeling exploited and I need to have some uh, preservation of self, outside of a very healthy example or conversation to handle that between two people, if they don't have the skills or the words to manage that, then there will be this back and forth uh, parlaying of trying to assert power, losing power, gaining the power. It ends up playing into what I call relational currency. What I as a partner bring into the relationship and what do I value? I may bring into the relationship access to social entree, intellectual skill, academic um, uh, status. I may bring physical beauty that is valued by my partner and that is my self-worth. I may, my currency may be my, how I earn a living for the family. My currency may be that I can bear a child and or bring a child into the, in, into the family. Any number of what one values, that's what currency is. If in, this, in the face of powerlessness, I have to bring something, feel good about myself, it ends up playing if the back and forth of, I have no control over you, but I certainly have control over what I bring and or withhold. Mm -hmm. So as an example, I often work with couples who the husband, that's again, we're being very, I'm being very male, female, binary just mm -hmm. for the purpose of a, a point here, the male sex addict may come in and say, you know, if she were more sexual, I wouldn't have to step out of the marriage and get sex and get my needs met. Mm -hmm. And she may say, you know, if he didn't work so much, 
if he wasn't so wedded to his job and married to his job, I would feel better about us and I would be more sexual. As if they've both fallen into the, well, my, my worth and my currency is my job. My worth and my currency is sexually what I offer. And I'm going to withhold one versus the other if I don't get something in return. Mm. And uh, it, it's a very slippery slope. However, neither of the slopes are rooted in, in credibility. Mm. Because he's no more stepping out of the marriage because she's not being sexual any more than she's withholding because he works too much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He steps out of the marriage because he may have a sex addiction. She withholds sex for the reasons that she does and neither have anything to do with what the other person makes, quote unquote, makes them think or feel. Mm -hmm. So how that relay of power back and forth has to be restored. And what I often say to couples is exactly what I just said now. Hey, Joe, let's be clear here. You chose to step out of the marriage outside of the vows that you both swore to each other and outside of your own value system. And this has nothing to do with Susie over here saying, I will or won't be sexual with you. Mm -hmm. Make no mistake, there are other ways to level this playing field. Mm -hmm. Stepping out and having sex is not one of them. So, yeah, I I want to, as you were talking, and I'm just going to play for a minute kind of the devil's advocate, because I think we may have some partners who are listening who would say, but if he wasn't working so much, I would be more sexual. And I think it has everything to do with that. So what does that mean? Right. And to, yeah, and to Susie, I would say, you're absolutely right. For you, uh-huh. you would love a partner who comes home, who's available, who's emotionally available, physically available. But again, you're choosing not to be sexual or your lack of, of uh, arousal or emotional closeness that prompts you to not want to be sexual is no more in this regard about him. This is about your response to what's going on Mm. and can be handled in a way that would be beneficial to both of you because the justification or rationalization around you're not home, I'm not going to be sexual with you is more about the resentment and other Mm -hmm. conversations that are not being had. Mm -hmm. So looking kind of, you know, when we work with partners, we'll talk about um, organic consequences, right? When you're not around a lot, I don't feel close to you. And it makes it difficult for me to be sexual with you because I don't know if I know you. But that's mm-hmm. her kind mm-hmm. of owning it for her mm-hmm. instead of saying it's you. And, and again, running her th- sexuality through him and saying you really Absolutely. have a lot of power over my sexuality. Absolutely. It's the, it's the self-empowerment versus the false empowerment of lauding or holding something mm-hmm. over or withholding something mm-hmm. from someone else. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so I, I listen to that and I, it sounds to me like the healing starts to happen when we kind of unmask the dynamic. Like when you start talking about the power that's traded through money or sex, um, not in terms of the money and sex, but just in terms of what individuals need or where they're at or what they're feeling. And we, we kind of take that middleman that I think you called it the relational currency we kind of take that currency off the table and say, what is it that we're actually trading and why are we actually trading that? Is that, am I hearing that right? 
Yeah, so I when I have a couple that comes in, and this might be the, the issue that, that we're talking about, although it may show up as uh, conflicts around children, conflicts around family members. I mean, there's any number of reasons that a couple comes into therapy, one of which is not because they're happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we all know that. But regardless of the conflict that they come in with, what I'm listening for and what I'm kind of pulling on slight threads are Where's the power here? And do, does each individual own their sense of, of true, authentic empowerment? Mm-hmm. And if I'm hearing that these are the issues at hand, I stop the couple and I say, I explain what relational currency is, and I then say to them, so what do you each bring to the table here? What's your currency? And while I know that it sounds very um, blunt, my goal here is for each of them to recognize that they are more powerful authentically than they may perceive themselves to be. Mm. And that they don't need to feel empowered falsely by way of what they have Mm -hmm. given to another or are choosing not to give at that Mm -hmm. moment. When they each feel more empowered within themselves, and that can only happen when they recognize what they feel shame about, or the level or degree to which they feel their own shame. Because that, that is what uh, um, undermines true authentic empowerment. I can't feel very good about myself if I'm seeped in shame about myself. And when I'm able to address and embrace who I truly am in my true self, I feel more powerful. And then I don't have to feel, by comparison to another, controlled by or controlling of the other individual. Mm-hmm. Sexually, I, I then own my own sexuality. Money, the, the money aspect becomes talked about and not just talked over. Mm-hmm. Um, wife, husband, regardless, same sex marriage, it doesn't matter. If one is earning money or working nonstop, there may be money, but there's no real connection. And the money piece may serve as the real emotional disconnection between the two of them. Yeah. And the anger's been hurt or pain about, yeah, there's money mm-hmm. here, but I don't have you. Mm-hmm. I also ask them, please answer this question for me. Money equals, and I ask them to fill in the blank. What does that mm-hmm. mean? Love mm-hmm. may actually mean money to many. Money mm-hmm. may actually have meant love and affection. So I want to find out what their own personal narratives are and belief systems around currency, self-worth, and what they believe in terms of their sexuality. So I'm I'm guessing, Deb, like just listening to you talk, like this is kind of opening up that vista for me as I look at money and sex and power in my own life um, and various dynamics that have played out. And I'm, I'm imagining for our listeners, it feels that same way. Like there's a lot of like, oh my gosh, this is big or some aha moments. Like in the work that you've done with people around this, what, what helps people to keep that open in a helpful way so that they can continue to kind of explore and heal and, um, and move these dynamics rather than just falling right back into what, what we've always been doing. Mm-hmm. That's a very, very good question. It's not going to be the same for every couple knowing what the couple, uh, the first question I ask for every individual who ever comes to therapy with me, be it in a, an intensive 
a workshop, an individual couple, otherwise, is what would you like from our time together? Mm. And if it's a couple, I want to know what do they each wish individually in their own mind? What was it they came for? What are they hoping to achieve in the session, in our work together? And then I want to know what would have to change about you in order for that to happen? Mm. Not what he has to do, what she has to do. Mm-hmm. Knowing what it is that, that they may not be on the same page, the first work I may end up having to do with this coupleship is bridging a lack of understanding of what one other's world is to them. And they're, and very imago based in that regard. You know, who are you? And, and do, I, do I really know what it is that your story is? What is your story? And do I know what it is about you that you want me to know? So getting a couple on the same page so that we all know in the room where we're working toward. If, uh, if a husband says to me, you know, there's no way that I want to be with this, with my partner. There's no way I want to be with my husband. There's no way I want to be with my wife. And then that's a game changer. We, I don't, mm-hmm. That's a very mm-hmm. different trajectory. But if they're both coming in saying, yes, we love each other, but I cannot stay in this marriage the way it is, or I cannot stay in this relationship the way it is, he works too much, she's not sexual enough, or he's too sexual, and I, I'm busy with the kids, whatever it may be, we have to ascertain, are we heading in the right direction together? And then I want to understand who are these people in front of me, but more importantly, I want them to understand mm-hmm. about each other. Mm-hmm. And I have had many, many couples come into the office and share information about their past with their partner that they have never shared before or that their partner has never heard before. Their story around sex, their story and the narrative around money. I have couples do a money egg. It is very similar to what we call in, in the field of the trauma egg, Marilyn Murray's trauma egg mm-hmm. that we work on. Uh, I have couples do their money egg. And there is a huge lay, overlay of their childhood, mm-hmm. earlier life experiences, and what the meaning of money meant. Mm-hmm. And our, the lack thereof, that they felt with sex or around the realm of money. And now we bridge, and I'm helping this couple see who they each are. It is not a perfect journey, and it is not a linear journey, but what they have for the first time is a path that they're both joined on together, working toward the same goal, and working as partners, not as adversaries. Mm -hmm. You know, I had an experience, because I've done a money egg myself personally, and, and I've also done a trauma egg. And when I did the money egg, there were several um, little blurps on my money egg that were also on my trauma egg. But doing it in the context of a money egg brought some a, a new understanding and brought some clarity that had had been there all along, right? But I hadn't seen it. And I think that goes back to what we talked about earlier, how it's there. It's in the background and it's always there and it's impacting and it's flavoring and it's shaping. Um, And until I had really 
clued into it and understood it and saw it, I, I was always missing that piece. So you're saying it was operating in the background and, and really um, pushing a, or, or, if you will, manipulating under the surface a lot of the behaviors you were engaging in unconsciously? Yeah, yeah. And, and I had understood, right, that issue through the lens of a trauma egg. I had understood that issue in terms of family of origin dynamics, different things like that. I understood all of that. And I hadn't, that understanding hadn't bridged the gap into the money piece. Just, you know, just, it didn't just naturally go there until the question was asked and I was putting it in the trauma egg and I was like, oh my word, there it is. Like, Mm -hmm. look at that. And, and it was all, it was the same story, right? But it was a new perspective that I was looking at it. Mm -hmm. And and a new lens through which you were seeing it. Right. Yep. Yeah, how profound. How really profound. Oh, yeah. it, and you can imagine what it's like for a coupleship when mm-hmm. they now see their own sense of uh, their narrative, their story, or the meaning they made of it. And now their partner sees it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I feel like this is one of those topics from the, the first time I heard you talk about sex and, and money and power. Um, I could listen all day. And I'm sure there's things to talk about all day long. Um, I'm wondering, Deb, for our listeners, like how, how do they get in contact with you? How do they get into your con- into contact with your work so that they can kind of further some of what they've gotten from listening today? Uh, I am easily access, uh, accessible on the web at www.debracaplincounseling.com or they could Google Deborah Kaplan Tucson. I am um, certainly accessible through you. If, if they were to contact you, mm-hmm. they could easily get to me through you. I don't know if you're putting up on a website this audio tape and if there's mm-hmm. uh, yep, information, but my email is info at DebraKaplanCounseling.com. And I answer all emails. It's, I always say to my clients, if you haven't heard from me, it's because I did not receive your email. Mm-hmm. And this is a very complex topic and certainly may garner more questions than answers for your listeners. We've covered a lot Mm -hmm. of terrain today, but the last closing piece, if you will, that I'd love to extend to the listening audience is that this very complex web oftentimes is not as complex when seen through the lens of a therapist who has a perspective outside of themselves and that the power of the sex and the money and the power often are more closely related than disparate. In other words, they're more related than not. Mm -hmm. And that healing one area automatically changes the dynamic of the powerlessness or the control in another area. And therefore there's hope. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want to leave your listening audience with the fact that there is a lot of work that can be done, very good sound work, and not a lot of time to mm-hmm. affect a change and get a different outcome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today, and thank you for that um, hope. That's, I think that's one of the things that um, keeps me going in this and, and keeps me believing in this is I see that kind of powerful change happen all of the time on these issues that people feel like are really intractable and 
you know, even so undefinable that they can't get started. I, I just want to echo that change really does happen, especially when people are working with um, talented, informed, skilled therapists like yourself. So thank you for, for sharing your wisdom with us today, Deb. You're welcome. And thank you in kind. I appreciated the opportunity and look forward to it and would love to come back if listeners want to hear more and in, in, in specific areas. So thank you very much. Yeah, that would be great. We'll have to set something up. At the end of this episode, remember that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story till it's finished. You can share your story with us on our Facebook page, Healing Paths, Inc., or at our website, www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. At the end of another episode, we want to remind you that nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Remember the prayer of the perfectionist. Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time and that the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I'm learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone, that I can ask for help. Help me to to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.